Hi, and welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the stories of visionary leaders advancing equity and justice worldwide. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in emerging leaders with the best and the boldest ideas for transforming the world, providing fellowship, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. This season of Encores features Echoing Green Fellows in dialogue with each other about the joy, creativity, successes, and challenges of working to transform systems for the better and for the long haul. Highlighting stories and advice from the moment these leaders decided to act, Encores explores our collective visions for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. Today's episode features a conversation between two innovative powerhouses, Maya Ajumera and Felicia Hatcher. Maya is the president and CEO of the Society for Science and the Public, which works to promote the understanding and appreciation of science and the vital role it plays in human advancement. She was awarded an Echoing Green Fellowship in 1993 for the Global Fund for Children, a nonprofit that invests in community-based organizations working with some of the world's most vulnerable children and youth. Felicia is the CEO of Pharrell Williams' Black Ambition Opportunity Fund, a set of prizes to fund bold ideas in companies led by Black and Latinx entrepreneurs. Felicia is a 2017 Echoing Green Fellow and the co-founder of the Center for Black Innovation, a research think tank committed to dramatically shifting the way black communities engage and create value within the innovation economy. In this episode, Maya and Felicia connect their vast experiences building inclusive opportunities for communities of color. They also share tips for navigating the transition between ventures and advice for emerging leaders seeking to raise capital and build networks. Felicia, it is so wonderful to have this conversation with you today. Can you tell me just who you are and the titles that you think best describe who you are? Yeah. Ooh. Um, well, one is I'm honored to to be in conversation with with you today. You know, being a mom of two is my the title that I hold highest, right, and closest to my heart. My professional title is the, the CEO of of Black Ambition, which is an amazing organization founded by Pharrell Williams to fund. Black and Latinx and HBCU startup founders and really give them kind of unprecedented access to dollars and resources and people to accelerate their companies wherever they are in the United States. And so we do that through a prize competition. I just remember meeting you and just being in awe because you were this, one of the things I remember is that that you had founded several other organizations. Like you were just on a rampage. I just remember telling you about the organization that I run, the Society for Science and being publisher of Science News and the importance of making sure that every young person in this country can become a scientist or engineer or innovator if that's what they want to be when they grow up and making sure that those opportunities are there. So I felt like you are a kindred spirit in in what you do. You know, when you say what titles do you think best describe yourself, I think of those titles as well as being the mom of, of a nine-year-old. She's going to be nine next Tuesday, but I think of being a mom first, a wife and, and family member, as they say, second, and then third, the organization I run today. 
I guess what I want to go into more is the organization you run today, and you told us about the mission. But can you go a little bit deeper into what the organization does and how you are finding this extraordinary talent and innovators throughout the country? At, at its core, it's we're funding brilliant ideas that have been overlooked through a national prize. And a lot of partners and people help us identify those founders that have been overlooked, that are building really brilliant companies, that have culture as an asset in what they're building and how they're building it. They're building teams, they're building community, but they're building the innovation of, of tomorrow as well, right? And for so many of our entrepreneurs that are either tapping into programs or resources, we're finding that a lot of them are over-mentored and underfunded. And so both of those things need to happen simultaneously, right? They need the respectable level of funding and not just kind of like a charity check for a for-profit, right? Like they need the right amount of funding so that they can scale, so that they can actualize their ideas, so that they can hire, so that they can buy. And then they also need high-level mentoring, and so not just someone that can say, yes, this idea is a good idea or a bad idea, but like I can make the right introduction for you so you're sitting at the right tables and not wasting your time, right? I can give you a glide path into the back door of how these, how these things really work. That has been some of the strength of our, our program at its core, right? And then a really kind of giving them permission to think more expansive about what they're building, why they're building, and who they're building it for. And so... You know, one of the questions that we asked all of our entrepreneurs in the very beginning is, you know, what does the world look like 50 years from now as a result of the work that you're doing today, mm. as a result of the companies that you're building? Like, we want you to be thinking not just to the next round of funding, but like, how does the work that you're doing actually have an impact on the world when you may not be here anymore to see it? Which is very much like the Martin Luther Kings, the Gandhis, right? Like, they were doing this work, they were waking up every single day. And they were not alive to, or may, right at the time, may not have been alive to see the fruits of their labor pay off, but they still woke up every single day anyways. And that for us is like the embodiment of our entrepreneurs. Like you're building something so much bigger than yourselves. And what, how will the world benefit as a result of that? That's wonderful. You know, the work that you're doing now and also your previous organization speaks so boldly to the work that, that you know, I've been doing over the last 30 years. But, you know, today, you know, the Society for Science really looks for the next generation of innovators, STEM innovators um, throughout the world. And we've been doing this for 80 years. And so when we look at the, the individuals that have come through our competitions, the Science Talent Search, now sponsored by Regeneron, the International Science and Engineering Fair, you know, we have 13 Nobel Prize winners to boot. We have oodles and oodles of individuals that have founded companies from Biogen to Amgen to Regeneron to Toast to Edatas Medicine to Modern Fertility. And what we have to do is provide more access for young people to have the opportunity to dream and dream big, frankly and to solve the world's most intractable problems, Felicia. I mean, you know, that's that's sort of, you know, this marriage of sort of the, as you said, the social entrepreneurship with capital markets and, and trying to open those doors. What keeps you excited about this work, right? So I like, I understand the, the innovative nature of it, but like, tell me what else about like Maya, the person that keeps you 
excited to wake up in the morning and like tackle the problems and create the opportunities that you do? I think one is people. I mean, I am very attracted to people. It's an incredible gift to be able to meet young people and all people that are that are really thinking outside the box and taking enormous risk and want to do good for the world. You know, you and I both have built something from scratch in our previous journeys and we understand the sweat equity it takes, right? It's sweat equity. It's sweat and tears and there's also enormous joy. And so I feel like it's about paying it forward to a certain degree, but I also think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is, you know, like I, I remember having this kind of like a, just like a rough patch a few weeks ago and I, I sat down and I like calmed down and then I was just like, you get to do this. Like you get to do this, right? And not everyone is afforded the opportunity to have an idea, have the resources or enough of the resources at arm's length to be able to put things together, ideas together, people together, structure processes, funding to build a thing that ultimately is helping other people. Right. But like that process of like, you get to do this. And then when you say Maya, like, and it's fun, right. Cause there's that oh, the other side of it too. Right. Like you can get so in the weeds of all the things that you have to do or build or get frustrated with, but then like, there's a there's a still a sense of joy in the work that you do. It's so refreshing to to, to hear that because you have such a just a dope career, first of all, right? Like there's no other way to say it, like, right? But like such a long career of impact and getting people into this space and building upon it um, day by day and person by person that you guys reach and touch and support um, and hearing that you still find time uh, to carve out joy for yourself and your team is something I would just love you to talk about a little bit more. Like, what does that look like for you? So we work with middle schoolers to high school seniors, right? And they are some of the best and brightest coming from rural Mississippi to urban Chicago, from India to Ghana to Zimbabwe, and seeing them present their projects and to communicate that with such passion and energy, it's a high. It's almost just such a high. And then to see like the International Science and Engineering Fair is the largest pre-collegiate STEM competition in the world. We have 2,000 kids compete for $5 million in prizes from 80 countries, regions, and territories. It's a kumbaya moment for me. I have never been in a, in a convention center where you see more diversity more different hues of skin color, half of them being young women innovators. That is what the future looks like, in my opinion. And so, you know, that's sort of the similarity, right, of, of you know, the work that you're doing in terms of, you know, these competitions, right, and seeing individuals that have worked very hard, really hard to be on that stage. And to making sure that they're heard and that they're valued and getting them the capital that they need to be able either to go to college or to continue their innovation or whatever the case is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that resource magnetism of just like, let me show you some steps so that you can become a magnet for everything that you need and that it starts coming to you, right? It starts coming to your community and you don't have to leave your neighborhood in order to feel smart 
or access tools and resources and dollars. This is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. We'll be back with more stories, advice, and reflections after a short break. On Course is presented with support from the City Foundation, which works to promote economic progress in communities around the world. Since 2018, Echoing Green and the City Foundation have worked together to build a more inclusive social entrepreneurship sector by supporting emerging innovators of color who are accelerating progress and transformation across the United States. Together, we are taking action to advance racial equity and help next generation leaders access their resources, networks, and support they need to increase social inclusion in their communities and help close the racial wealth gap. Welcome back. This is On Course. You're listening to founders and fellows Maya Ajmera and Felicia Hatcher. So another Echo and Green fellow, Catherine Finney, I don't know if you've had the chance to, to meet her, yeah. but, you know, you, you built something that was your baby, yeah. right? I think most of us call it like our first business, nonprofit, like our, our, our baby. And that at some point you're just, you, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to do something else, or I'm ready to like build something else. And I, I was at that point really two years ago when it started circulating, but made the transition last year. You know, you did that as well. And I bring up Catherine because she wrote this article on LinkedIn. And what she said at the beginning of it was like, I, I have built things and I will build again. And like, I kept reading that, like, I don't know, I probably read that line at least a hundred times because, you know, when you pick up something that it just, the moment that you needed to read it, you needed to read it, yes, right? Yes, yes, uh-huh. Tell me a little bit about when you knew it was time to leave the Global Fund and do something else. Tell me a little uh, bit about like what you were feeling. So I always had this important thing in my mind going through is that I didn't believe founders should stay with their organizations forever. I don't know if it's a value or just something I felt very strongly about. I felt that the organization's truly going to be a global institution and survive and be around in 100 years. It's got to be run without its founder, okay? And I think at the 14th year mark, I started thinking about that very seriously. And it was hard, Felicia. It was not easy. There were several other things. I was going to be turning 40 soon. I had just gotten married. We wanted to have children. My doctor said, you need to take some time off. I hadn't had a sabbatical. I had been running at this speed for 17 years. And, you know, you need to rejuvenate. So I went on sabbatical and I was at the Paul Nietzsche School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. I wrote a book, started teaching. I had a baby. And I, I won't I won't mince words to say that Global Fund for Children went through its ups and downs after I left. But I will say this now. In the last four years, there's nothing better than a founder to revel in the the the, the wondrous growth and and beauty of the organization they built like i just have a huge smile on my face like wow i built that that's so cool nice 
How about you, Felicia? You've started these organizations. How did you come to that realization that it was time to move on? And how did that feel? And how do you feel today? Ooh, I to a certain extent, I'm still in. I feel like I'm still in the middle of it, right? Because it's not been been a full year. But you know, after I had my my son, I well, right before I had my son, I I had just went through a really bad bout of like burnout. And like, I had to ask some really big questions of myself, right? Because I was like, you know, I think externally I was winning, but internally I was not, right? My body just was less like, girl, you need to like chill out. You need to sit down. And then I'd finally made a decision. You know, I, it's time for me to, to transition. I, I felt that I had done all that I could do in the way that I best know how to do it for my organization. And I felt the most responsible thing that I could do was, you know, start planning on to leave. But I think one of them, if we can talk about mistakes um, in the early days of branding, when you don't have a team, well, you don't have a team, you don't have any resources, you don't really have any contacts. It's like, well, let me build this thing or build the brand to be respected. So I get the phone calls answered so we can get the resources, build it around me. And then that's good to a certain extent, but you got to transition from that Agreed. as soon as possible yes. so that people respect the organization. Right. And so, you know, when I was starting to pull back, that was really hard because when I would send my team to meetings without me, it was always, well, where's Felicia? Or we don't want to make this decision without Felicia. And so that became really hard to like, well, how am I ever going to transition from this if no one is respecting anyone else on my team but but me? And so the first thing that I felt, I was like, well, I have to set a date. Like at the end of this year or end of the, the next year, I am going to transition because if I keep kind of like kind of hanging on on the sideline, I won't be able to ensure a healthy transition. And then from there, it was like talking to quite a few people who had also done it, right? And asking their opinions. I'm like, how did you do this? How did you do it in a smart way? How did you get over the fear that everything was going to crumble when you did decide to, to make this decision that was ultimately in the best interest of the organization? And then it was having my son and then being in the hospital for an extended period of time after having my son that was just like, you have to make the decision uh, and I would say that the, the the last part of that mentally, just as an individual, was who am I without this title mm. and who am I without this work? And am I OK not being this thing anymore? I would be honest, it took a full year of like kind of removing myself or kind of shedding aspects of that identity. But I think the biggest com hard, hard conversation was having that conversation with myself and saying, now is the time. And so that's why I said when I read that article from Catherine at that time, and I had had a conversation with Catherine, actually, um, reading it at that moment where she was just like, I've built things and I can build again. I think that's that other part of like, you know, you said you spent what 17 years building something. And then there has to be that feeling in the back of your your your, your mind of just like, well, can I do this again? at the way that I did it, right? Like there's that. Felicia, I didn't think anyone would ever hire me. Like I was I was like, I literally thought, okay, I built this thing, but who'd ever hire me? What skills do I have? It was like a complete imposter syndrome. So Felicia, I totally get where you're coming from. This is hard stuff. We don't talk about it as women either, that there are other things like you just said you had a baby, you know, and was in the hospital for a while. You know, I had a child as well. 
being a mom. I mean, all of those things provide an added sort of layer of complexity Mm -hmm. to this work. I want to go back to one thing we haven't talked about, Felicia, and that's really about how it all started for you. You know, the moment of obligation. What was that that got that spark that led you on the journey that you're on? I mean, there were a few things. One was being a C student in high school and like my guidance counselor telling me I'd never make it to a college or a university. And then setting out to prove her wrong. I won like $130,000 in scholarships as a C student. I think when I graduated high school, my GPA was like a 2.7. But I learned like there's more than one pathway to success. And that had followed me throughout my career. And so when Derek and I were, we were running a food company in Miami at the time. We would get invited to all the entrepreneurship things. And we would be the only ones that looked like us in the room. And we're like, we just know so many really brilliant people that have their heads down. They're building companies but they're not understanding the way networks work and relationships work. And we need to be able to do something about that. And so we started to build the community. And then coupled with the fact that we also realized that, you know, both of us having technology backgrounds, that we wanted to train at the time our employees, we knew that they weren't gonna be in the food business with us forever. We weren't gonna be in the food business forever. And they were all high school students from like the Overtown and Liberty City area of Miami. And we wanted to train them in the most marketable skills possible. And so we were like, we're going to host like a coding boot camp just a day. We'll teach you how to code like in just a short boot camp. We'll bring all of our friends that are in tech and they're going to talk to you. We'll buy pizza. We only expected like our employees and we like bring some of your friends. We expected like 20 people. We had like over 80 people show up that day. We're like, oh my gosh, like what what is this? But no one was investing in um, the black community and making sure that they were learning how to code, that they were a part of like an active participant or a financial beneficiary of like Miami's tech and innovation co- uh, community when it was just starting to sprout up. For me, that was the moment of obligation, right? Where you kind of, you look out and you see a problem much bigger than yourself and you ask yourself, if not me, then whom? And when you cannot answer the whom part, that's your moment of obligation to say, I'm either going to be okay with seeing this problem continue to fester and I can do something about it or I'm going to do something about it. And that was for us how it first started. What about you? Um, So my moment of obligation was I received a fellowship out of college that allowed me to travel from South and Southeast Asia. So I traveled from Thailand to Pakistan for a year. And I was in India and my parents are originally from India, but I was on a train station in Northeast India, in a town called Bhubaneswar, and I got off this, it was a hot, dusty day, and train stations in India are really chaotic places, but on this train station platform, among the chaos, I saw 50 kids sitting in a circle learning how to read and write, and there was a teacher in the middle teaching them with flashcards, and these children were obviously destitute, and they had siblings, baby siblings in tow, and I asked the teacher, I spoke Hindi, my friend spoke the native language, Oria, but we were able to ask the teacher, what's going on here? And the teacher said, these children live on and around the train platforms. They work, they play, they beg, they sleep, but they don't go to school. And a teacher was walking by every day and said, how do we get these kids to school? And so she decided, the social entrepreneur, Inderjeet Karana, that she was gonna bring the school to the train platform. 
So she brought a basket of magic with, you know, some chalk and, and slates and puppets. And she had one kid come, then two, then four, then eight. And that became a trained platform school. And I asked this teacher, I said, well, what does it cost to run one of these schools? And she said at that time in 1990, it was $500 a year with two teachers and a hot meal every day. And I said, are there more trained platform schools all over India? She goes, no, there are a few around in the city at the different train, but no. And it's there that I had that moment. One, how do I help? And two, how come I don't see more trained platform schools? In my more sophisticated social entrepreneurship language is how do you get capital into the hands of really innovative grassroots organizations? And how do they become scalable and sustainable in their work? I went with that moment and went to the School of Public Policy at Duke University. I started getting my master's and I read about all the things I needed to learn and then just decided to found the organization. And I founded, before we made our first grant, which was to the Train Platform School, I actually said we were going to start a social enterprise, which was our children's book publishing venture. And I wanted to do that because growing up in Eastern North Carolina, books were my friends. I never found anything that spoke to me. I never saw the images of me in books. So I wanted to create children's books that showed kids that they were part of a global village. And so the first book, I remember we got our first royalty check and we decided to give it to the train platform school. And then over time, the organization has invested over $50 million in 900 innovative community-based organizations over its 25 plus year period. I want to go back to this, this idea of the networks, right, that you've built over time. And, and when you go and build these networks and you're trying to make investments in these extraordinary innovators through your work, what has helped you navigate the world of philanthropy and donors and fundraising? I'm very curious about that because it's hard work putting out your tin cup over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. And what tips or tricks have you picked up that have helped you navigate this world? I don't know if I've gotten it down to a science because I, I had to learn some really hard lessons about the proximity to power and wealth and what that means in, in philanthropy. I, and I stumbled a lot along the way. And I think it's also... Um, Growing up and not fully understanding the power of money, you know, I, I work with startup founders all the time that are in front of, you know, investors in front of people that don't look like them and the power dynamics that that ensue when they're needing the funding from someone that may not necessarily understand the depth of what is required in order to do do the work. And I say that because a lot of those entrepreneurs and even myself had a toxic relationship with money. You know, it just did not fully understand the way that it works, how to ask for it, the power of relationships, doing the work, explaining the work, keeping and maintaining and being asset framed in how you talk about your community, but then also realizing that a lot of philanthropy is deficit framed in how we describe the exact same people that we're wanting to, to, to work with. Like there's been so many different things. I think, you know, Echo and Green definitely helped, right? It definitely helped of just kind of understanding 
how to talk about the work, how to talk about ourselves, how to talk about the power, the strength, the understanding, the empathy that we bring to, to this work. But I, I raise a lot of money and I feel like I've gotten good at it, but I, I still struggle, right? I've learned a lot. So I share a lot with founders and entrepreneurs and other social entrepreneurs about making sure that you're asking for the right amount of money. This is not a place where you overpromise at all, right? I'm still learning lessons about proximity to power even right now as we fundraise, as we successfully fundraise, but just realizing that money is just a really interesting thing. It just really is, especially in this space. What What about you? So I've been you know, raising capital for a long time and it's still as hard as it was when it when I started out. And I would like to say that things have changed, but it hasn't. You still, you know, there's this, how many pitches do you make? You make 10 pitches and possibly you get two that are interested and hopefully one gets funded. And that can be exhausting over time, right? Encourse is produced by Echoing Green. Since 1987, the Echoing Green community has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. Echoing Green invests in emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and sets them on a path to lifelong impact. In 2020, we launched our Racial Equity Philanthropic Fund to ensure that the social innovation field takes bold action in the racial justice movement. To join us and support new generations of social impact leaders from all over the world, visit echoinggreen.org. So, so then let me ask you this, you know, where we are today and the work that you're doing, can you think about a specific trend or innovation in the field of black tech or STEM that excites you, but also is worrying you? The access more than ever before, right? More than ever before the access enough of like, you know, the black and brown community understanding the context of the moment that we're in uh, so that they can do something with it and about it. Um, those that that excites me more than anything. I think we're much farther along than when my husband and I entered this space eight years ago. We're farther along in people understanding how to unlock the opportunity and the more than anything, how to uh, to be financial beneficiaries of that. Right. And so yeah. that we can start to see economic changes in our community. You know, when we first started the work, there was like, hey, let's let's figure out the tech thing and the STEM thing. But then it wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't connected to economic development and economic impact in communities. And I'm, we're starting to see that much more. You know, I think I think you're absolutely on target with what you're saying, you know, with our outreach and equity work that we do at the Society for Science. You know, we reach millions of students. We're starting to see the fruits of that, of of you know, kids of, of color that are winning at these competitions. The question for me that keeps me up at night, are the dollars going to continue? And, you know, I, I, the disconnect for me, to be honest with you, has always been the companies that say we need great talent. We need diverse talent. 
Well, if you need diverse talent, you need to start very quickly and you need to start soon. And you need to start in your public education system that goes all the way up to college, frankly. And I don't, that is where I'm not seeing the dollars. They, they speak a good, a good game, but they're not actually investing the way they need to be. No, I, I agree with you on that. That's the question that I've been asking. Like, and so since, I don't know, what, about a year now, right? Miami has been like thrown into the thrust of like all like tech communities. And ever since our city mayor tweeted, like, how can I help? Right. And my question has been to everyone with this tech boom, with everyone moving to Miami and all these tech companies is like, you know, how will the community be better as a result of this tech boom? You know, will we see increased investments in our K through 12? Will we see our lowest performing schools start to perform or outperform some of our other schools? Like These are the things that should happen as a result of this tech boom coming to our community. I, I want to ask you, as we're starting to, you know, finish this conversation, when your work is done and your mission has been achieved, what will the world look like? You know, the quick answer is the world would not need any of the organizations that I founded. If my mission is done um, and achieved, it would not need that. There would be true equity, true respect. Our communities would be competitive and thriving. And it just, it wouldn't need the interventions that we're currently creating. That's big, audacious, pie in the sky. Not even pie in the sky. Like I, I feel that there we can reach that at, at, at some point. But to me, that's what it would be. Like ideas, no matter who you are, where you are, are, are valued, they can be actualized, they can be resourced, and they, then they can be economically viable. That would be like job well done, mission achieved for, for us. What about you? So a couple of things. For Global Fund for Children, like we're in the business of going out of business. So we have, there is no global poverty anywhere. So there's no need for, for, for investments. I think for the Society for Science, the work will be done if every young person has that opportunity to become a scientist or engineer, if that's what they want to be. And that means strong public school systems. It means great after-school programs. It means parents that have the resources to be able to provide those opportunities. I will say that I want the science talent search, the International Science and Engineering Fair, and the Black Ambition competition to continue so they can continue to put out all of these extraordinary innovators in the world to create new technologies and new ways of thinking about making the world a better place. Those are important, frankly. For those listening out there, Felicia, how can they, how, how can they learn more about what you're doing? So tell us about that. Yeah, the, the, the easiest way that they can learn is visiting our website. And so blackambitionprize.com. And then being able to, to follow us on social. We put out a lot of content. Uh, we have a really brilliant Decode the Uncoded video series as well. It's so inspirational and so amazing with entrepreneurial stories. And so uh, those are the places. And then to be able to learn about the 34 companies that we founded are also on our website under our founder stories. They are so much fun to go through. Really inspiring. And, you know, I can't wait to see you know, the next cohort. If folks want to learn about the Society for Science, it's just www.societyforscience.org 
or our wonderful magazine, sciencenews.org. And then the organization I founded beforehand was the global, is the global fund for children.org. But, you know, I just, Felicia, what an honor it's been to learn from you, to engage and to be just inspired. And I know our listeners are going to just say, I, I, I want to be Felicia. So thank you. I want to be Maya. So thank, thank you for this conversation um, as well. Your work has been absolutely brilliant. And I think for all of us to uh, stand on the shoulders of a giant like you is an absolute honor uh, for us to be able to carry that torch. And so thank you for the work that you've done and for sharing your story with me and living life uninterrupted, right? I think we both do. This episode was produced by Nicole Hill and Sumia Misra with narration from Jessica Tillman. Thank you to Vincent McNatt, Lindsay Booker, and Alex Silverman for their work on this season. To learn more about Echoing Green, visit echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. This is Echoing Green.